Hello and welcome to the Niche Podcast for Tuesday, April 24th, 2012. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaver. And we are going to talk about building apps that run everywhere. This week we're going to cover everything under the sun. Ghost clicks in Avalio, end of file merge conflicts in Git, database events with boutique.js, and a bunch of other things. So buckle up, because here we go. Good morning. Hello. Ah, if you if you want to call it morning. <laughs> yeah, what's left of it? <laughs> kind of slept in there, didn't you? A little bit. <laughs> yeah, yesterday was a round trip to Miami. Got up at 4 a.m. and got back at midnight the next day, which is usually, I go to bed a lot later than midnight, but uh, I was wiped out. Yeah, traveling wears you out. Mm. Big time. Yeah, just kind of just hanging in there till the end of the day today, and then, <laughs> then I'm off. Yeah, it's pretty exciting, huh? Vacation? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Are you going straight to, where do you fly into? I'm going from Cincinnati to Boston. Mm. Cool. Get any like big Boston plans while you're there? Uh, not really. Just kind of, kind of play it by ear. Mm-hmm. Cool. So let's see. We've got um, a bunch of random things that happened to me last week. It sounds like you've got a couple of random ones too. Yeah. I'll just I'll start with Avalio because that one seems like it's going to be an ongoing conversation. <laughs> so. I think it's been about a month that ago that we launched Avalio to do mobile-friendly domain search. And it's like the simplest little app ever. It's just you just search, and it checks to see if uh, the don you can search for a domain name with or without the TLD, and it checks to see if it's available. And we made it kind of, you know, fancy, Ajaxy, and, you know, works offline, and so people can... Uh, you know, if they're offline, they can check the previous searches and stuff they favorited for later and that sort of thing. And uh, it's it's just like no end to the little bugs that keep cropping up. So this yesterday, I discovered that it has the uh, the famous ghost click bug. Have you seen that when you when you're using touch events and it, you like if you're on the starred screen and mm -hmm. you t and you tap on the very first item, it's supposed to take you to the search for that item. So you tap on it and it switches tabs and it goes to the search results and it'll show you whether or not that domain is still available or not available. And if, you know, you tap on the row, it's a touch event uh, so that it's really super fast and then you get to, it pops over to the search screen, but the, the, a click event fires also when you, when you have a, when you do a, uh. so the click event fires, but it fires on the search tab. So if your finger just happened to be on a spot where there is a link on the search tab, mm -hmm. it clicks it. So you, you go, so you tap on, you know, whatever, jstark.cc, it switches to the search tab, and then it clicks on one of the uh, registrar links and it goes to that registrar, depending on where your finger was. And I struggled with this uh, on JQ Touch for a long time when we were working on the Android version, the ghost click problem was really bad. Uh, and also, in, in fact, in the in the book, my Kilo example in the um, iPhone and Android books was same thing. There's this one particular spot where the touch events happen so fast that the screen changes, and then a click event fires randomly. Well, not randomly; it fires where your finger was, but on the next screen. And 
it just goes to like I remember saying that like touch events are almost too fast sometimes and it's it's kind of one yeah. of those cases yeah that's that's interesting because when you started describing it I was thinking you know um, we're not even binding to binding to click on items devices that support touch but you know I didn't realize you know you're talking about following through with the link mm -hmm. there to hover so yeah, yeah. So I've got a, so I'm going to go through and just like disable, you know, when touch is available, just disable clicking on stuff. Um, but in which we can get away with because the app is so simple, but in general, right. yeah, in general, you have to be careful with that because if you just randomly disable clicking, uh, you can't check check boxes and you can't um, insert a cursor into a text area or an input field. So you can't just randomly do it. But uh, I, th I think the problem, the app is simple enough that I can just target the specific uh, things that I want ignored and prevent default, but it's just, it's just funny. I was like, Oh man, this app could barely be simpler on the client side. And it's just still the, like the things that crop up when you try and get fancier than just plain old, you know, browser behavior. Yeah. So simple little Avalio causing problems, <laughs> acting up. Yeah. That's gonna, that's gonna be the, the little app that we keep tweaking forever. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good educational process. So you mentioned that something happened uh, uh, with Git for you? Yeah, I was working on a, a little open source project with a friend of mine, and we ran into a problem where it happened with a CSS file. And come to think of it, now that I think about it, I think I've had it happen before with a CSS file. But looking at looking at the issue i don't really think it's going to be css specific i think it could happen with any file but what happened was um when we were we were editing the file and making end of line edits on the file um would cause problems with gets auto merge oh really yeah it just i don't know if it messes up that last bit or or what have you but something about it you know there were there were just additions so it should have you know it should have merged fine but something about the the end of line edit there on the css was causing merge conflicts so our solution was to just go in and add a add a eof comment at the end of the file and just do everything above that so that last bit doesn't get touched weird yeah when what did it uh what was it saying when you're trying to merge did it just fail or did it give you some kind of message yeah it would just it would just fail with a conflict you're know, saying there was a conflict in that file that needed to be resolved and all it was was we were just adding css to the bottom of it Weird. Yeah. <laughs> huh. I wonder if that's a known issue or if it's if it's a feature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? It could just be the the nature of the way the files live on the file system and you know are addressed on the disk and what have you. I don't know. Hmm. And was it was this some was this a Git thing or a GitHub thing? Uh, Git. Oh wow. Huh. Let's keep our eyes peeled for that one. That's interesting. Yeah. So, like I said, it's it was on the CSS file, but I, you know, I've never had it happen on any other type of file. But you know, it doesn't seem like there's anything about that that should be specific to CSS. So I'm thinking it's just just a rare thing, and I just haven't encountered it. I think I think I may have had it happen once before. Hmm. Well, good to know because I'm such a a Git intermediate. There's I know there's a million things that it can do that I don't that I'm probably doing the hard way. Yeah, but uh, merge conflict. I've always been had a hard time when when I get a merge conflict. I'm like, oh god, I what have do I to do? Like, yeah, what do I do? <laughs> I have to look it up every time. It doesn't happen that often, but uh, yeah, if it was happening a lot, then 
you know, I guess it's, I'd be better at it if it was happening a lot. So I guess I should be glad that it's not happening a lot. <laughs> yeah. So you know, we just, just add that, add the comment at the bottom of the CSS and I took care of it. Oh, cool. Well, that's good to know. I may just make that a thing I do on CSS files in, in Git repositories from now on, just so, just so it doesn't mess you up somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I feel, you know, I feel like I've seen end of file comments before. Yeah. It sounds familiar now that you mention it. So I wonder if that's, uh, I wonder if that's why. Hmm. Yeah. It's not a, not an uncommon thing, but I usually thought of it more of the, more as a purpose of, for documentation. Like if you're browsing something that has a bunch of files included, you can see where one ends and what have you, but you right. know, maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's serving more of a purpose there. Right. <laughs> yeah. You see it when people have like a, a preprocessor for their file, like they, they yeah. process all their JavaScript into one file for release. Yeah. And you see a group like that. So I've definitely seen that before. Huh. Interesting. So speaking of Git, I pushed a new, uh, pushed a new quick little project up to GitHub called uh, Boutique, which is a, a little data store <laughs> for old farts like me who, uh, who think in SQL. So I, what it, what it does is it stores everything it kind of abstracts the, the database concept, the storage concept, so that you just create a new boutique object, which is roughly equivalent to a table, um, mm -hmm. which I know isn't cool because it's, it's a data store and, you know, we don't have tables anymore because we're cool. But I still think in tables and I still think in SQL. Yeah, so. that's, a, that's a rant for another day. Yeah, <laughs> totally. But it's super straightforward. You just say, um, you just say like, uh, you create a new boutique, which is really a table and mm -hmm. name it whatever you want. So in this case, it'd be like entries and you just, uh, whatever entries dot insert, and then you put in an object. Uh, I'm not checking dirt or anything like that to make sure that each record is the same. So you could really stick anything in there, but it does a couple of things that are, that, that I, I just was like super excited about once I had it done and started using it. So first is that you can insert, when you insert stuff into the table, if you don't provide, um, a property in the object called ID, then it'll create one automatically. But you can provide one if you if you're pulling it from somewhere else, and you can insert it, and it'll you know so like just like a a SQL style thing. Oh yeah, that'll be handy you for syncing with the back end too. Yeah, exactly. Creating a new one or versus pulling it in from the back end. Right, and they're universally unique identifiers, so you don't really have to worry about collisions. So there's that. It also automatically sets um, a created at and an updated at timestamp if you don't provide them when you send it in. But my favorite part of it is that y you don't send, you don't have to send callbacks to it. Instead of that, I just uh, emit custom events from the database. So you just, so you don't have to like capture the result of whatever you just did. So for example, uh, if you insert a record from the you get you're like on the new entry screen you insert it one line of, one short line of javascript to create that and then in the uh it, then the overall application here's an event like so when the insert completes the overall application here's an event and can respond to it so it's like oh an insert just happened on the entry table go update the ui wherever you need to so it's it, it it's not quite as cool as binding data directly to the user interface, which maybe and maybe I'll, in fact I'll take it a little farther and get there. But 
but just that one little bit of you know the the user interface being uh, alerted to the fact that a change happened in the database is like super awesome so you just re-render whatever you need to re-render and so like when when the document or when the application gets the event you can inspect it and be like okay this happened on this it was it was well you can do two things you can just listen for every single database event and then inspect the event to say okay uh, this was on this table it was a delete uh, here's the record that was deleted you know here's the information from the record that it was deleted so I haven't written it yet but the concept is that the inside of the database that's where I'll implement the Ajax piece so right now it's just storing everything locally I haven't decided if I want to put the Ajax piece inside of Boutique or, to, or that be a separate thing some kind of like a sync script so I can say uh, whenever the database whenever the local database is updated then run this Ajax thing and if the Ajax thing fails then roll back because you still have the record that you deleted or you still have your last change uh, and alert the user or whatever um, but so I'm still deciding which way to go with that but it's it's uh, I haven't seen I, this is the only I've never seen any JavaScript persistence framework that emits events there must be one out there it seems like something that you would want and have you ever seen one uh, no I haven't hmm I'm surprised I don't. I'm surprised I don't see more programming like that, where I, I can't think of any example of uh, a JavaScript solution that emits custom events. It's always callbacks. It's like every, you're always throwing a callback into this pool, and uh, that and that's fine. But I just feel like what ends up happening is you end up creating a a lot of little functions that you're sending all over the place, or a lot of anonymous functions that you're sending all over the place. And it feels a little bit um, scattered to me. And I don't know, it just feels like, it, it just feels... Feels cluttered. Yeah, it feels cluttered. Yeah, that was, that was one, of my, one of my big issues when I was working with Node on Ravel. Yeah, that's right, you mentioned that. It, comes, it becomes like these callback disaster area. Yeah. It's like sometimes you want it to be synchronous. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes it doesn't, doesn't always need to be. Async, you know? Right. So it'll be interesting. To, so you know, watch this space. I'm going to keep working on uh, on boutique because it's super helpful to me. I know for sure that there's some stuff in there that's uh, that, for example, won't work in IE because I don't think there's uh, the way that I call the custom events. I'm pretty sure it doesn't work in IE, but I haven't fired up my PC in a while, so yeah. But it's on GitHub and it's public. So if some if some Windows genius wants to go in there and add something, send the pull request to me. I'll have to check it out. You snuck out and by me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a. Uh, I, I think I wrote it during like a nap over the weekend. Cooper was napping. <laughs> Erica was out shopping, so I was like, ah, I got to get this done. So what else can we talk about from last week? Uh, I guess Heroku would be good. Uh, we had a little issue with them. Heroku, which I, we both really like, right? I mean, you like Heroku, yeah. don't you? It's, yeah, I like it a lot. Yeah, it's amazing. It's really, really cool. It works the way I feel like stuff should work. But I'm like, when it, when you can't do, when there's something you know is possible, but you can't do because they just don't support it, it drives me crazy. Um, and one of them, you know, so with uh, with Kilo, it was a cross-origin resource sharing. I yeah, Maybe there's a way to set it up, or I don't know, if, did you get a definitive, no, we can't do that, or you just, just can't find a way to do it? Um, I haven't actually contacted anyone at Heroku about it, but I, you know, 
I'm, I'm not in all the research I'm doing. I'm not seeing anything about that being possible with them. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be a no. Yeah, I, I, I could imagine that it would be. Yeah. So the concept of cross-origin resource sharing, if you're not familiar, is it's supposed to, to in a nutshell, it's supposed to allow you to write um, AJAX requests that uh, can be received at a domain other than the one that's serving the JavaScript. So in other words, the same domain or same origin restriction is lifted by virtue of the uh, of some headers that you send back and forth. I've never actually set it up successfully, so I, I'm not an expert at all, but I do want to write the the Kilo application, and in fact, a bunch of applications, I want to write them so they don't have to go through a proxy page on the application server. I want them to go straight to the API if possible. I wonder if we could you know, just send custom headers back in the Sinatra application, if that would do it. We have to set something on the server, though. The, the um, I can't remember what, and th because the thing with the thing with cores is that I don't get it. I don't get it conceptually. It does. It seems completely backwards to me. The way, I'm sure it's not. I'm sure I just don't get the use case. But you can already make requests to other domains without permission. You know, like for images and script files and CSS. You can right. do, you can do that. The only thing you can't do it with is AJAX. And my understanding of the reason for that restriction is that, you know, for uh, cross-site scripting attacks. So that mm -hmm. if, if, you know, if you think about it, why wouldn't an AJAX request be able to be sent to another domain? And the reason is that, you know, so many sites uh, accept user-generated input and people can try and inject JavaScript into the database. And if you aren't really careful on the site that you're hosting to scrub your incoming data, um, a rogue user could insert JavaScript into the system that would then get displayed to other users when they visit certain pages on your on your site. And since that JavaScript would be executing in the context of your site, even though it's not your JavaScript, uh, theoretically, if there was no same domain restriction or same origin restriction, then that 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 hacker JavaScript could execute and send like your session cookies or whatever to evil.org, uh, and and you know, and that would be a problem. It would be it would be have sort of a chilling effect on um, on what on first of all accepting user generated content and also using third party JavaScript in your application. So like like uh, if I include um, an ad network or Google tracking code or or jQuery from the live server, you know, from the 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 Google CDN. If you included it, uh, what am I trying to say? But it, it, I'm getting lost. But the point is that it always, uh, I always thought the same origin restriction was to prevent that, was to prevent rogue J uh, JavaScript from getting into your site from someone else and then being able to talk with uh, the hacker's site to, you know, harvest database information in their database. Right. So if, so Cores doesn't address this at all. It's because the hacker is in control of his server and would just set up cross-origin resource sharing on his server. Like, to me, it should be something that you set on your site. So you say, you know, for, so wherever the application is being served from, you should say there that the application is allowed to make requests to these this list of URLs. Like, I, don't, I just, 
totally don't understand why it's not like that. It makes right. so much more sense to me. Yeah, I, I agree because it's it's not preventing you from getting the app, the the information. So if the point, you know, you can still get whatever potentially sensitive information via the remote call. You know, you just you just can't process it with JavaScript. But you know, there's nothing to stop you from. You know, if you fetch it with a, with curl, then you can do whatever you want with it. So it's not like it's it's not like it's preventing you from from accessing information. So it doesn't provide any extra security there. It just prevents you from executing it. And so yeah, that seems like a decision that should be made on the receiving end. Yeah, it's it's I I don't I'm sure there's a reason for cores, and it's just not the reason that I thought. Because when I first heard of it, of course I thought, oh sweet, you know, I'll be able to configure my application to be able to access other APIs on other servers. You know, it's like a very common use case that you want to be able to um, like write an application. Because here, here's an exact example of the problem. And I wrote a, years ago, I wrote like a little Twitter client for as an example file, and I wanted to talk to the Twitter API. So, uh, you know, I went through the, um, I knew that I wouldn't be able to to do it directly from the application, the client of the application, the JavaScript code running on the client. So I set up a proxy page on my server and I just passed any requests. You know, I sent all of the requests to that page and then I just passed through to, to twi the Twitter API and, and handed off. So a proxy page, which is what everyone does. The problem is that the, um, that this was working just fine on you know, when it was just me using the application, but then when a bunch of people started using the application, all the requests were originating from the curl on my server. So I almost instantly hit the rate limit, the Twitter rate limit, because all the requests appeared to come from the same place, even though they were coming from, you know, technically they were being generated by a bunch of users, but, uh, you know, Twitter didn't know that. So after the first, after a hundred, I think it's a hundred requests in a minute, so after that, it was just like, see ya, and it would just completely fail for everybody after that. Yeah. So it's, you know, you can under I can see why they have rate limiting, and I can see why you wouldn't want people accessing the API programmatically from a server, because then you could just, like, pummel them. But I don't, I just, it's a mess. I think it's, the, the cross-origin thing is, I feel like it does more, you know, I, I think it made sense at one time when people, when it was like the Wild West, but it just seems like there should be a way to, I don't know. Yeah, it seems like we've gotten to the point now where there's there's enough communication across domains with third-party services and what have you that that type of security should be, you know, it should fall on the on the receiving client end. Right. You know, it's, it's like if you're going to build a site, then... <laughs> set it up correctly <laughs> yeah it, it feels like the it feels like the standards bodies just being like oh people are too too stupid to build a website that's secure yeah like you know, don't don't babysit me just let me let right. me write my code right you know i want to talk to that server and i can talk to that server from a bunch of different places why not the browser so you know so long rant on that i, I don't know if there i don't think there's a, a good solution so the bottom line is that we're going to move um, over to move the API over to uh, Amazon Web Services because we've got full control there. So, like the the benefit of Heroku is that it's like super easy to configure. You just like you know click a couple things, and all of a sudden you've got uh, 
you know, email services and uh, like Postgres and on and on and on. It's just like these, it's very plug and play, which is cool. Push your code and you're done. Yeah, exactly. It's awesome. But, you know, this is like, you got to be able to control your server. So, so when you had the same kind of thing with WordPress this week, which was that, uh, you know, I went through this whole, you know, we've getting the podcast set up and it's going to be on wordpress.com because it's like super stable. It's relatively easy to work with, uh, design the whole thing to look like, you know, I, I pick a theme, I edit it to make sure that it looks like the niche, the regular niche homepage and all that. And I look at it on a phone and I'm like, Oh, I forgot to put in the, uh, the viewport header, the meta tag. And cause it was, you know, zoomed way out. So I go like looking all over the place. How do I insert a meta, you know, how do I, update the HTML of the template, which obviously you can do if you have a self-hosted WordPress site, which I used to have, or I, I still do have a, uh, my regular blog. But, uh, so I couldn't figure out how to do it. So I contacted um, Automatic and they, you know, got right back to me, which was cool. But the, the problem was the answer was no, you can't do that. And I was like, you can't edit the HTML on your own site? I was like, on, a pay, on a paid account? Yeah, on a paid account, right. hundred bucks a year. I can't edit my HTML. They're like, nope. <laughs> so I was like, all right, well, I'll just make my own. I had, t you know, used one of the, one of their themes as a base, the chunk theme. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, I'll just, I'll just create my own theme where obviously I have control over the HTML and like upload it and just pick that theme. But you can't do that either. Like, yeah, you have goes through a whole approval process. And I was like, Jesus. So, so going with Margo. Yeah, on the on the plus side, automatic support was good and gave you your money back. Oh yeah, yes. I I hasten to add that they were very good, <laughs> and I mean I was still within my um, my thirty day. You you always have thirty days. Well, not for everything, but with some things you have a thirty day refund policy, and I was like at day yeah. twenty nine. So uh, yeah, I didn't even have to. He didn't even have to help me with that. Uh, I actually just went on my regular account and it was like, you know, cancel this service. Yeah. So speaking of niche, um, there was, uh, uh, I got, went through all the DNS setup and everything last week. I changed it a hundred times. So it was, you know, plenty of cases for people to go to niche.cc and see nothing. Uh, but at the moment I do have niche.cc slash podcast up. Uh, it's no big deal right now, but we'll continue to work on it, but at least it's available there. So that's pretty cool. And I was really, I, I took the version of Margo that we had up on GitHub and there were some things about it that, um, I initially wanted to do, you know, like having the configuration file and the, and the, the, the dot, you know, file names start with a dot. So they're invisible, uh, to the user if they had the, you know, like the, the drive mounted on their Mac. And some of that stuff turned out to be a little too clever when I went to actually implement it. So if you, if you look at the code, you'll notice that it's different from what's on GitHub and I want to kind of go back through it and see if there's any, cause I was just like, we don't need this fancy, you know, we don't need it to be universally useful everywhere. I want it to be as easy as possible for us. So, uh, I went through and ripped out some stuff, added some stuff, moved around a little bit. And then if we want to, you know, you and I can look at it and see if it's worth pushing back to GitHub or just leave the one on GitHub as is, because the one on GitHub is much more of a freestanding blog. Right. Uh, but I, so I took some of that and changed it around on our install. So if you want to take a look at it, you can, 
get a feel for if you like it better or not. Um, so yeah, oh, speaking of which, we finally made our, our niche, um, the heck is it called? Like our own uh, Amazon, Disc image. yeah, our own Amazon machine image, I think they're called, AMIs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be awesome. You know, we, I think we've got like, say, five or ten um, instances running on EC2 at any given time. You know, and every time we get to set up a million things. And I think we talked about it last week. Um, you know, you made, we got one the way we wanted it. And then uh, I saved it as a machine image so that when I went to uh, the other day, all right, so the other day I went to put Margo on the niche server, but uh, I couldn't, I didn't know how to get PHP enabled mm -hmm. uh, on the, because, you know, it was already on another image. It was on like a stock Ubuntu image. So I just, you know, I took down the files. I deleted the whole thing. I started a new uh, instance based on that one that you created. And then I just threw the files up there and didn't, <laughs> so this is what happened. So I threw the files up there and I just expected PHP to like something to work. And yeah. it, it turns out that it's the machine image has everything we need, but I didn't know how to turn any of it on. So like for like, how did, how does that, what would I do normally if I wanted to quickly throw up like um, a PHP site? Um, if you go in, if you go in, in my home directory on that, on that Amazon image, there's a notes file in there mm -hmm. and there's just a few lines. Like when you set up the site in Nginx, you have to set it up to proxy to PHP FPM. Mm -hmm. So there's just a just a little bit of example code in there on how to how to set up that proxy. How do you like? So I'm an Apache guy from mm -hmm. forever, and probably one or two of our one of our two listeners is probably also. So like, <laughs> can you? Is it possible to sort of give a high level view of how Nginx works from the perspective of someone who understands Apache? Um. It's probably not. It's probably a crazy question. Like, yeah, I'm not sure how to really, how to really break it down because to me, I don't really see that much of a difference in terms of how they work. It's just a, just a difference in syntax and structure of the config files because you still have, you still have the virtual hosts. They're just set up as server blocks inside of the inside of the config. Mm -hmm. so and like, it's like, just it's a it's a little bit different format, but it's it's essentially the same. Okay, so really, the so really, my problem was like I didn't know where to where to go to set. Right. But it so it seems like the steps are that I would just put a folder somewhere on the on the server and then configure nginx and then start it. Right. 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 You mentioned that I think you said that when you start it, the config is specific to each site, though. Is that my am, am I correctly? understanding that right um with it with nginx you know each each site has its own config and so you're you're doing, you're setting up the proxy inside inside of the config for each site so that's i mean that's not the way I, that's pretty advanced compared to apache i think I, maybe i just don't know about apache enough but i don't think you can configure stuff like that on a site by site by site basis can you uh, I'm not sure. I'm I'm not that familiar with Apache using it as as a proxy service. Mm. So I'm probably just showing my ignorance. You probably can in the virtual. Yeah, I probably am too. <laughs> yeah, you you in the virtual host file, you could probably probably do something there, or maybe even in uh, 
yeah, it's, it's got to be possible to have PHP. You know, if you're in a virtual hosting environment, there's got to be a way to have different, you know, PHP or Ruby or whatever on or off on a site-by-site -site basis, but I've never oh, done yeah, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. So basically, it's it's very similar. I just didn't know where to look. I didn't know how to start the server. I didn't know where to configure it, so. Yeah, there's a, there's a bit of a learning curve. The, the configuration is, it's a little bit more advanced, a little bit, you know, different structure. I feel like it's I feel like it's more flexible once mm -hmm. you once you get over it, but there is a definite bit of a learning curve there to it. Yeah, I mean the sample code you had up there, uh, which after I I didn't find until we we chatted, um, but it looks like super clean and a little bit more modern. Yeah. So that's cool. Oh, you know what? There was one. This is this is funny. This is one last thing. I I don't know if uh, I don't know how I'm gonna like. <laughs> edit all these conversations together, but this is one that I wanted to mention. So on the niche site, I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, on the niche site, the, the header logo, if you will, is just a word, just niche inside of uh, an A tag inside of an H1 tag. And the text treatment is, is set to transparent. And then the background of the so behind the text, there's like this gradient that I'm using CSS animations to kind of move around. So it looks a little mm -hmm. like an animated rainbow. Mm -hmm. And then I, and then I put text clipping on the, on the, uh, element so that you only see the rainbow through the letters and kind of, I'm kind of attached to the effect. I like it, but it's driving me crazy for a couple of reasons. And uh, one of them I noticed the other day is super interesting. It, first of all, it doesn't, it fails spectacularly on a couple of different platforms, which is like a little too ironic for, you know, <laughs> a site that supposedly makes apps that run everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so, it, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is, and this is weird, when you zoom in on like, especially on the iPad 3, the text around the edges of the, like the C in particular, which is obviously round, it's really pixelated. So, which is bizarre because the browser must somehow be making an image out of it. Yeah, it must be. It, like it must be making it, it. I can't imagine why that would be the way it works because they're make they're somehow the text, which is live and selectable. And if you, <laughs> if you zoom in, it's obviously being treated as an image. It's not like a vector font type of thing. So somehow, and it's animated, so it's not like they're, it's not like they, they're, the browser is just taking a picture of it, you know, with the background and, and, and converting it to an image on the fly. And I understand that, um, that gradients, so that the gradient rainbow that's in the background, I understand that the browser does actually generate that as like an image, but why would the, why would the edges of the text that the rainbow is showing through become pixelated? It's, it's crazy. Yeah, it's it's like it's not it's not clipping along a vector path there. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. And maybe maybe that's maybe that's just what it is. Like maybe the vector path is the the edge of the text is um is just showing through pixelated portion of the graphic in the background. I mean, but you would think that the graphic would be the right resolution for the the device the that device, you're running it on. Yeah. Yeah, but, you would think. Yeah. 
so what so what do you think our options are there if we wanted to if we wanted to maintain that effect mm-hmm. i mean what do you think like a, a gif you think like what um no i'm thinking i'm thinking an an spg mm-hmm. image with a black background where niche is actually the transparent knockout mm-hmm. and then under that we have the css gradient animated Hmm. Like just on a, in a, on a, like a block div. Right. How good is, how good is, I suppose SVG support's got to be better than, better than. Yeah, uh, it, it's, it scales really well. I was using it on my, on my site before I did the last redesign. If you remember the, the circle down at the bottom. Yep. Oh, right, right. How is that across browsers though? Uh, it looked good. It looked good. I didn't notice any pixelation with the, Cool. Huh, that's a thought. You still have to somehow get the image to be high res. Like, it almost makes me want to make a high res image of the rainbow and not use a gradient. Well, yeah, that's that's why I was thinking we use an SVG for the for the niche text itself, and then just knock out, and then just knock out the text, and that way you have this, you know, the resolution independent vector image of the of the logo type. And then the background gradient animating behind it. Hmm. I'll still have to. Yeah, I'll, I'll do a couple of tests. I'll do. I'll see if I'll see what happens if I take a high res image, and just replace the gradient here with the high res image, and see mm-hmm. if when I zoom in, if the pixelation goes away. If it, you know, if the pixelation is a property of the image or the clipping path. Right. So. Yeah, we figure. Got to figure out which one it is. Right. It's just so so bizarre. Cool. Anything else happening last week that uh, be interesting to kick around? Uh, I did some playing around with the with the file reader API. Oh, cool! So it was kind of fun. Yeah. What did you, what, like in what context? Um, well, the file reader API, which is you know, the API that the web browser uses to read uh, read information for uh, uploaded files. You know, you just you quite often see in things like drag and drop upload or you know Ajax file upload and what have you. Yeah. And I was actually using it for a different purpose. I was using it to generate. I did a couple things with it. I first I used it to generate uh, thumbnail previews of just image files that you'd selected for file upload boxes. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, it didn't do any kind of asynchronous upload or anything. It's just you select a file. If it's an image file, it put a preview thumbnail preview next to the file input. And the second thing I did was I just kind of used it there just kind of as a, a MIME type validation. So when you'd select a file, it would say, oh, hey, no, this isn't an image file. Or oh, what cool. have you. Cool. And um, I actually ended, ended up turning it into a jQuery plugin. Oh, nice. Awesome. And it, is it, uh, did you already put it online? Yeah, it's on GitHub. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So put that in the show yeah. notes for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote a blog post about it too. So Sweet. Wow, I missed that. Did um, did you test in various browsers? What was the? Is it a Firefox only thing, or is? No, it should work in anything that supports the file API. And if if the browser doesn't support it, it'll just fall back, and you'll just have the regular, regular text input box. It just doesn't do anything. So, cool. Should degrade. Should degrade nicely. No, nice, <laughs> nicely, oh, nicely. <laughs> Uh, Making up words as I go. Nice fully degradationing. 
Um, and the other thing that came up, and maybe we'll save for next week once we have a little bit more, uh, more time to play around with it. But I was really impressed with that um, that blog post. Uh, the the post so came across this blog post. I was struggling with the cores thing, and searching around, and came across a blog post who's who was by a woman whose name I I won't attempt to pronounce. Um, but it was really a brilliant use of something called post message, which I'd never heard of before. And on top of it, it was a really cool thing that she was doing with like, um, she was like stitching images together using canvas. So like, it was like double cool, uh, yeah, because there were two things that I, yeah, I had no idea you could do either one of those things, never mind both. So, um, I, I, hopefully yeah hopefully have be able to to talk about that a little bit more next week because we do have a fair amount of uh image related um client work that we do so it'll be potentially potentially cool and maybe the post message thing will solve the cores problem yeah so we'll see that looked definitely looked like something we want to look into as a, as a viable alternative to the cores yeah absolutely at least for at least for internal projects. Yeah. Yep. So cool. Anything else from last week? Uh, no. Last week was actually kind of slow for me. So mm. just kind of kind of winding up a bunch of little things and getting ready for vacation. So. Sweet. <laughs> All right. So I guess with that, uh, I'll say happy vacation. I'll see you when you get up here. So that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaver. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Bye-bye.